Well, this is it, brothers and sisters. You've made it this far, all the way to episode 24 of Welcome to the Faro. September 2005 is upon us in the timeline, and I am very close to finishing my mission. One of the crowning events in the Book of Mormon, the one that we probably shared the most with people, was in 3rd Nephi. Here in chapter 15, specifically, verse 9, the Savior says, Behold, I am the law and the light. Look unto me, and endure to the end, and ye shall live. For unto him that endureth to the end will I give eternal life. In the micro-chronology of a mission, which in a lot of ways can mirror the life cycle, um, I was looking back and reflecting on how that played out, and how true that was. How focusing on the needs of the people and on the commands of the Savior made that mission fulfilling and yielded, I wouldn't say eternal life, you know, not for me anyway, but the people that I was able to share the gospel with got put on that path. And I hope they're still on it. This is Welcome to the Faro, Episode 24, Endure. A couple of really cool developments right off the bat. There were plenty of familiar faces in the Valencia zone when I went back, but then again, Maybe that's because when you've been around in the mission almost the full two years, you know most of the people because they've come in behind you. Elder Evenhouse was now my zone leader, uh, along with Elder Criddle, a fellow statesman from Nevada, from up north in Winnemucca. And my district leader was none other than Elder Trupanier from Lehigh, my, uh, my fellow rough rider. He'd been in Matero, I was his DL, now he was mine. Which is just fine with me. It, it, it was one responsibility less with which for me to concern myself. I could just focus on finishing strong in Alcoy. And uh, Jones was gonna kill me off and prepare to train. He'd been in the field for uh, almost a year you know, been on, on his mission for over a year. It's just the way that the timeline shook out. But yeah, had Trep and, and even House and Feraldo was there too. He was in Castellon. Uh, there was another Spaniard, Elder Garcia. He was Elder Ortiz's hijo. So he'd been born in Albacete around the time I got transferred up to Girona. And so he was in Cataroja now. He was Trapagne's companion. And, uh, this dude was a bag of cats. He was from Vitoria. He was Basque. Um, one of the few very tall Spaniards I ever knew. Uh, dude was taller than me. I'd, I'd wager he was about 6'5". Beanpole skinny. Um, but yeah, quite a character. That was, that was uh, Trep's experience with a native companion. Um, what else, what else, what else? We had a bunch of other characters in Valencia, including uh, Elder Hatch from Arizona. We'd remain in touch for many years to come. In fact, when I ran my first Tough Mudder in 2012, uh, I did so with, with him on my team. 
his wife tagged along and my wife was uh, pregnant with our firstborn. Uh, his trainee was, I'm not sure if it was his trainee now that I think of it, who was his companion? Marshall? Chad Marshall? Could have been. Then Buxton, and then I, I can't remember who the other one was. It was probably Elder Wallace, who uh, I would later run into in, in Vegas. Um, he married a girl from Spain, and then they spent some time in Vegas. I remember running him, into him in the temple once or twice. Just a, a great bunch of hardworking elders, and um, being around them, it was easy to have an example at hand all the time to remind myself, you know, be, be the one that shows them how to die well. Let them see that. There were some, some pretty popular stories in our mission of guys that hadn't finished off so strong, and I didn't, I didn't want to be one of those. I didn't want to slouch. I didn't want to lose it. I would joke around occasionally and start using slang, calling everybody dude and whatnot. Even House would give me a mad stink eye. But, you know, the, the working never stopped. By now, we had mostly caught up with everybody in Alcoy. We made one or two trips out to EB, but we had plenty to do in the city. When we had first showed up, um, our friend Conchi was on vacations with her family, so we, we didn't get to meet up with them right away, but near the end of August, they came in and they had us over for lunch and told us about their vacations down in Morthia and how they'd rented a farmhouse and their son, the big tough guy Fede, had made his way through the local supply of girls one night at a time. I choose to believe that that means he was very uh, cordial and chivalrous and took them all to nice dinners or open-air concerts in the humid south and uh, was very gentlemanly as he walked them to the door and nothing else happened, but then again, maybe I shouldn't be so naive. Also caught up with the Vaca family. Uh, we were out walking around proselyting one, one day, uh, this was still back in August, so I'm flashing back here a little bit, but we'd been in town for a couple of days and Mario and Gabrielle saw us while we were walking and they ran across the street and gave us these big old bear hugs. They were so happy to see missionaries again. You know, specifically Jones and I, because like I said, we'd been the, the ones mainly who, uh, who visited them when, when we were there the last time. So, um, those are the people that I think of when I think of like really loving somebody. Earlier this year, maybe it was last year, yeah, it was last year, I read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. I don't have any of those four loves for that jack wagon in the train right next to me who keeps blaring the horn. Can you tell that I'm standing by again to get loaded with acid and that it's five in the afternoon and I should be home right now, but the gods of trucking are not pleased with me at the moment, apparently? Anyway, I read The Four Loves, and that's a book that I'll definitely cover on the Brother Trucker Book Club in a future episode. But he talks about, you know, familial love and filial love between parents and children, and then you know, the, I can't remember what the third one is, and then the fourth one is, you know, romantic love between, you know, husband and wife, that kind of thing. And the world gets very confused about all of those loves, and there's a big push amongst, um, you know, certain cross-sections of the culture that assume that any love that doesn't result in sexual desires is not pure love. Um, it's not how love works, especially not how charity works. Uh, but that, 
that transfer especially was my education in, in real love. Having, having just love for those people. You know, being joyed to see them and to see them happy. To hear about things going on in their lives. Knowing what it's like to, to want the best for them. To talk with them and help them to develop you know, hopes and ambitions and, and ideas for living the gospel in environments that weren't always conducive to it because that was the thing that was going to bring them joy. Having that focus was, it was in, incredibly moving. And I always think back on that time there with so much fondness for that reason. Who else? Uh, we caught up with Nuria. She was a few years older than me. Um, kind of living on her own, but like in a different house, apartment, place that her parents owned, her mom owned. She ducked out to Andorra for a few weeks uh, and then came back. So, uh, you know, caught up with her and then, of course, you know, spending plenty of time with Los Boluda. We went over, we had our, we resumed our weekly lunch appointments with the Boluda family, elderly couple. And uh, I never got trunkier in Alcoy than I did on the day when we went over there. And uh, the hermana, I forget her name, was making lunch for us and putting this huge Spanish spread on the table. And then Hermano Baluda comes in from the backyard, you know, consummate Spanish gentleman, retired in his swim shorts. He'd been taking his, uh, his midday swim out in their pool in the backyard. And, you know, this quiet little town, no noise, no hustle, no bustle, nothing, just living that that Mediterranean retired life. And I'm just like, oh man, you are living the dream, sir. Ruben has since told me that it only costs about 50 grand to buy a house outright in Alcoy. You better believe that's still been on my mind. I think the only holdup is I'd have to be some kind of stupid to go buy a house in the European Union with things being what they are right now. I don't know what the annual taxes are, probably another 50,000 every year until you die. Plus, I doubt they pay truckers that well. Anyway, I'm getting into the weeds. It was just great to see all these people. It wasn't until this trip, this time, I say trip, this go-around in Alcoy that we found out about uh, Ruben's father's history as a Holocaust survivor. I know I mentioned that uh, in the February episode. Uh, he had written a memoir before he'd been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And uh, he wrote it in English. His English was better than his Spanish, but he did write a Spanish version that Maria Luisa helped him to translate and edit. And she went into the, you know, his office in their apartment and dug out a paper spiral-bound copy. And we ran it over to uh, Ana Compaña's Papeleria. She was a ward member who owned a, a paper and copy shop and stuff. And you know, she took the spiral binding out and ran off a couple of copies for Jones and I, and we read it and just blew our minds what this man had lived through. It was one of those books that really puts your life experiences into perspective, especially if you've never lived during wartime in a war zone, effectively. Um, so that, that really heightened the level of respect that I had for that man. And I uh, wish I could have had some conversations with him about it, but just didn't get to know him at that point in his life. But I was able to read his words, and it was, it was incredible. And of course, we resumed our weekly lunches with Maria Luisa, and she would make us just these rich Spanish meals. I still have never had a gazpacho manchego as good as the one that she made that day. Wonderful lady, 
2017, after uh, my wife and I moved up to Utah, um, you know, Ruben happened to be in town and his mom happened to be visiting. We were able to have them over at our home. And, and uh, even though it had been 12 years, it was like the time had never passed at all. We just picked right up where we'd left off, having, having a meal. And, and uh, man, friends like that are rare. There was one story that I wanted to share with you. Haha, <laughs> story, because that's Ruben's last name. Um, where do I begin this one? Kind of puts things in into uh, context. So we had three different alarm clocks go off every morning in the apartment. Uh, Jones had a private one, I had a private one, and then we'd set the alarm clock on the cell phone. Now normally it was just a, a stock ringtone that would go off, but <clears throat> Ruben would often give the missionaries rides, and then if he did that, he'd put it you know, the radio on and play whatever music he wanted. He'd kind of needle us, oh, you guys aren't supposed to be listening to this. Well, during one such trip, Elder Westenhofer had recorded Billie Jean uh, by Michael Jackson off of the radio and kind of set that to a ringtone. And so it had been saved on that phone, and so we set that as our, our morning alarm clock. Well, Jones's clock made one tone, and my clock made another tone, and between setting all three, they you know, call it a, a freak of timing, the fact that they weren't perfectly synced up. But one morning after we'd set all three of these clocks, uh, you know, his went off and mine went off and then the phone went off. So it goes, it starts out beep, 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 beep. And then Billie Jean goes off and we both just wake up laughing our heads off. Still tired because as a missionary, you're always tired. But the between Westenhofer and Ruben, that was the gift that kept on giving. Well, one morning while we were out walking around, and man, you guys, I just finished reading Dandelion Wine yesterday by Ray Bradbury, and you're, you're going to catch me pontificating and painting these big verbal portraits of how beautiful Alcoy was, how serene and how quiet it was, how people were going about their business, but it wasn't a crazy breakneck-paced place because it was a Valencian Pueblo, and they just didn't go that fast. Anyway, we're walking along in, in a nice part of town, and Ruben comes driving by, and he pulls over and he goes, hey, I'm, I'm going to Campeo. You guys want to come with me? And we didn't know where Campeo was. It was in our area, but so were a lot of these kind of coastal pueblos. Um, you know, the church didn't really have a presence there or anything, but, you know, we could go out there with him. It's like, yeah, sure. You know, we're, we're doing well on our work for the week. We had an appointment that afternoon that we'd be back in time for with uh, a Romanian buddy named Doreen. Excuse me. Uh, water break here. Anyway, we hop in with Ruben, we're chit-chatting, and, you know, he's asking me about what I'm going to do when I get home, and, you know, I made some small talk about it, didn't dwell on it too much, I had about three weeks left. Uh, anyway, he's got to go do something for work out in Campeo, he drops us off on an adjacent street, and he says there are some, uh, you know, British shops, because Campeo was a, a coastal city, a beach city. And uh, I guess a lot of Brits come down from England and open up shops there to sell, <laughs> so, so dumb, they sell British stuff to the British tourists so that they've got a piece of home with them when they travel to Spain from England. And like, we're talking about like somebody from California going to Louisiana and wanting to make sure that they still get their in and out, you know, it's <laughs> just eat the local food, frick. But I wasn't really complaining back then because 
these people imported a lot of stuff from the UK that you could also get in the Americas, which you couldn't get in Spain. Uh, it was impossible to find maple syrup. You couldn't find root beer. You couldn't find good peanut butter. You couldn't find beef jerky. You couldn't find a lot of stuff. You just didn't have it. And I'd gotten used to, uh, you know, Spanish, not versions of these things, but Spanish replacements. But, you know, here I was with trunkiness on the tip of my tongue, and we walk into one of these little British shops, and holy crap, they've got a generic highly processed cake mix. I haven't had that in years. <laughs> grab a couple of those, grab a cake frosting mix, because uh, I couldn't remember the recipe for my cream cheese frosting for carrot cake. And I hadn't gotten to experimenting with it yet, so I just grabbed a frosting package. I grabbed a chicken pot pie, like a crappy personal microwave one. I hadn't had that in forever. Jones grabbed a bunch of stuff, and we take it to the counter, and British lady at the, at the counter sees our name tags, and she's like, oh, are you Mormons? Are you from Salt Lake City? <laughs> yes to the first, no to the second, and you know, struck up a small conversation, but... You know, bought a bunch of goodies, and it wasn't too expensive. Took it back to the apartment, kind of pigged out that night. But it was in this way that Jones was able to start up a little side business, which, according to mission rules, was not strictly kosher. But we soon found out that he had approval from the highest echelons of command. You see, dear listener, President Watson still had a couple of kids that were in the uh, late teens age range. He had four daughters, four, excuse me, four sons and one daughter. And I believe it was the youngest son who came with him and Hermano Watson to Spain when he'd gotten called to be mission president because it was only a few short months after that that this son would then go serve his mission in the Dominican Republic. So imagine having, you know, half your family putting in their mission papers all at the same time. Uh, he ended up starting in the MTC the same day that my group started, so that's why President Watson said he was kind of keeping an eye on our group, because when we were wrapping up, it also meant that his son was going to be wrapping up and coming back to Spain you know, to be released and spend a little bit of time with his parents before going back to Utah to do school in January. Um, so that's important for one reason, but... Uh, you know, the second thing is that Reuben didn't just go to Campeo. He went to other beach cities where you could get other American things from other British shops. And he found the golden calf, the big kahuna, the unicorn, the crown jewel of all American items that were nigh impossible to possess by us missionaries on the Iberian Peninsula. Yes, dear listener, Reuben found Dr. Pepper. You could not get it in Spain. I mean, I thought I was doing pretty well when I found a six-pack of vanilla Coke in Mercadona, which didn't last very long. Other than that, like, the most American soda that you could get other than straight-up Coca-Cola and Pepsi was the most Mountain Dew, and I hate Mountain Dew. And still, the first time that I found a six-pack of it, I bought it and drank most of it just because, like, oh, yeah, this, is, this reminds me of home. Mountain Dew's disgusting. It's bovine urine, antifreeze, and sugar. That's it. But no, Reuben found Dr. Pepper, and Reuben told Jones about it, and Jones started peeling off some bills. And he gave it to Reuben, and, he's, and I think he just handed him 20 euros, and he says, I want you to buy me as much as you can, keep a six-pack for yourself, and bring me the rest. Whatever the amount was, it ended up being about 75 cents per can. Then... Jones turned around and started selling it to other elders in the zone for a euro fifty a can. 
you are not supposed to do this. I thought he might get in trouble. I didn't say anything. He had this racket going for about two weeks. And he, you know, he wasn't like he was banking the money. This is stuff that he would use to, you know, buy banana bread and buy treats and goodies and stuff for people in the ward because, you know, he just, he was generous that way. Um, business is kind of second nature to him, though. He's always looking to, uh, to flip stuff. Anyway, this was going on for a couple of weeks, and suddenly we get a call on the mission phone, and all of the phones that were on our plan, like when you got called by another missionary companion, like it, it was just a three-digit number that would show up. And so you'd kind of recognize, like, oh, this one is Elche, this one's Alicante, I wonder where they're calling. Then we got one that was like the lowest of the three-digit numbers, and I was like, oh, crap, this is the office. What do they want? Pick it up, it's like, hola, soy Elder Bradley, que tal? And Elder Bradley, this is President Watson. Is Elder Jones available? I'm like, uh, okay, yeah, sure. Hand it over, and Jones is like, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And then he starts laughing. He goes, yeah, I can do that and get you set up. Hangs up the phone. <laughs> I said, what's up? He goes, he found out about my Dr. Pepper business. And I was like, oh, are you busted? And he goes, no, he was asking. He goes, could your mission president possibly get a six-pack of that? <laughs> And we found out it wasn't just because he'd heard that you could get this impossible beverage, you know, not just for that anyway, but, you know, his son was coming home and his son loved Dr. Pepper and he wanted to have some to, uh, to kind of toast his return when he got back. And uh, I had a good laugh over that. So, you know, Jones rolled a couple more dollars into the next round of DP and, uh, and we, we sent a six pack up to Barcelona for the Concilio. Um, for the next time that the, the zone leaders went up there. And that was the story of Jones starting a business in the mission. It didn't last long. He didn't keep it going from there, but it was fun to do for a couple of weeks. As far as progressing investigators, uh, really the main one that we had was a girl named Diana, who was 22, and her mother was a member. Diana wasn't. Um, because, you know, strictly speaking, she was uh, mentally challenged to a degree. She had, you know, most of her faculties about her, but, you know, just, just you have a conversation with her and you could tell that, um, you know, she was a little bit behind on the, uh, on the cognitive curve. Um, you know, not sure what all the diplomatic language is supposed to be on that. Not even sure necessarily what her diagnosis is. But she started, you know, just saying, hey, I want to get baptized, I want to get baptized. And a couple of the members in the ward were like, yeah, she wants to get baptized, but you know she's uh, retrasada, right? And I said, you know, I'll, I'll double check and see, you know, what the rules are on that. I don't think there's anything against it as long as, you know, she's understanding of, of her covenants and willing to live it. You know, and she, she lived with her mom and her mom was a little bit less active, but was you know, supportive of, of the decision, and we ran it by the bishop and stake president, and I, I guess they checked it out, and they're like, yeah, it's great, so we went to go pay her some visits and teach her the lessons in the Althena's home, and, and uh, you know, she was the main one that, that we were teaching who was progressing towards baptism. That was uh, the next meta that we were very happy to report to the Ayudantes back in Bars. And then, like I said, we had our friend Doreen, who was Romanian, who we were really excited to teach because he was progressing really well and especially because Jones had gotten very good at you know challenging and inviting he'd, he'd gotten a lot more you know bold as as a missionary you know during his time in Tarasa and uh, we almost had a meta with Doreen but something happened somewhere else in his life he showed up one day and he said he didn't want to 
visit us anymore. He didn't want to talk about God anymore. He just flat out didn't want to hear it. And I'd heard of people who had this happen to him. Not sure what it was. I, I couldn't get a straight answer out of him. Something had happened and he just decided to, uh, to completely wall up. He wanted to be, you know, friends with us, say hi out on the street or whatever. But I guess things were just getting a little bit too real and that wasn't his thing. And, uh, he decided he was done with it, and so that was a bit of a devastating, you know, gut punch that we weren't going to be able to, you know, help him join the church during that time. But uh, we still had Diana to teach, and that was very encouraging for the ward because, you know, Alcoy was one of those places that didn't baptize very often. Um, my personal opinion, my personal assessment of of my last few weeks there and the fact that you know, we had Patricia Navarro get baptized and we had Diana get baptized was that the, the faith of the members was necessary for the success and progress of the work. And furthermore, uh, the, the faith and diligence of the missionaries involved was also necessary. And the elder that would come to replace me after I died, his name was Elder Marsden, he was Jones's Eho. Um, he was incredibly diligent and he was very fortunate to have Jones as a trainer and within my first few weeks of being home I would get letters from Jones saying that they had progressing investigators that they had made from street contacts like not even from member work straight up people that they had stopped on the street who were progressing through all the lessons and reading on their own and wanting to get baptized and those are those are the hardest ones to find, it seems. But the Lord was preparing those people, and the ward was prepared to support them. They'd, they'd gotten some experience with Diana, and uh, you know, Jones and Marsden baptized multiple times in their time together uh, that fall after I left. And man that just that brought me so much happiness to know that the work was was going to continue to progress um, things have have gone up and down since then uh, you know as I've been able to keep my ear to the ground talking to friends who live there and everything um, they got whacked really hard by the financial crisis in 2008 Spain did like if you thought it was bad here in the US they had over there they had like 26% unemployment at one point and if you were under 30 it was 50% unemployment like just just imagine that i heard from ruben every now and then how bad it was he was changing jobs every two or three months it seemed because it was it was hard to find something that was that was stable you know it, it was it was devastating to hear that um, but on the plus side a sister from my hometown from my home ward growing up got called to the same mission around 2000 10 2011 probably and said that you know the the work was progressing in different ways now because the hardship helped people open up to to seeking a relationship with God to asking for divine help and we see that cycle play out plenty of times in the book of mormon how when things are going well people get casual stuff gets hard they get corrected they repent god pours his blessings out on them again and that has not changed in our day. Um, and I'm not meaning to like, you know, put a negative light on Spain or anything. The same thing happens here in the States. It happens everywhere. It happens to me. You 
know, even as I'm recounting these experiences of the, the best two years for my life, you know, there's still been times in between where I've just gotten casual, and uh, you know, we're we're in a time period and we're in an era where that's not going to cut the mustard anymore. We've we've really got to stay on the ball as members, as covenant children of God. You know, that's uh, that's what He expects of us. That's what He requires of us if we're going to survive spiritually. A couple of other light and casual things happened near the end. Um, this final transfer was kind of when I picked up my yerba mate habit. I can thank Hatch for that. I had tried yerba mate in high school. One of my Spanish teachers uh, you know, brought it in when she was you know, teaching a unit on certain Latin American countries, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, um, you know, and I guess Brazil's big on it too. But I decided to, uh, to try it out, and it's a little bit of an acquired taste up front, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm still very much into it. I, I love having me some yerba mate. It's, it's just my favorite. Um, the other elders from Valencia also came out to pay a visit to us in Alcoy one preparation day. That's uh, Hatch, Marshall, Buxton, and... Maybe Buxton and Marshall were companions. Maybe it was Hatch and Wallace. They came out to, or no, Hatch and Walker. That's who it was, Goober. They came out to uh, you know, spend the day with us, and there's this hill in Alcoy that we had climbed at Thanksgiving that's got a big, uh, big iron cross at the top of it, like made out of trestles, I think, you know, angle iron. You can, you can kind of you know, climb up inside and, and uh, get an excellent view of the town. And uh, again, it's just so it's so quiet there. The sky is so blue. The hills are so green. Little city of seventy thousand people that just isn't moving too fast. It's not too crazy. It's those days walking those streets, looking at the beautiful architecture, the calm setting, the landscape. And the warm people that lived there. It wasn't just the place, too. It was the time, and it was the fact that I was coming towards the end of my mission. Visiting that in my memory is kind of my own personal Elysium. I, I just can't praise it enough. While I was up at the top of that hill, you know, just thinking about the fact that I had about 10 days left, taking in the beauty of it all. It was very, very moving. The next day when we were having a, a lesson with Diana at the Olfina's house, middle of the lesson, I had an anxiety attack and had to put my head on the table thinking, holy crap, I'm a week away from finishing and what if I don't want to? What if I want to stay here? What if I never want this to end? What if I was enjoying the status quo of being here working, knowing that the end was going to come someday, but I didn't want to sit there and count the days and think about that too much, and suddenly it was there. And like Gary Paulson says in Woodsong when he was finishing the Idita Rod, suddenly having to go back to civilization to deal with people and the way that they moved and how it was different from the way that nature moved, he stopped about a mile from the finish line and turned his sled around to take it back into the wilderness, kind of in a state of shock and, and delirium, I guess. Yeah, the managers went and grabbed him and brought him back across the finish line and he was okay, but... I get it, you know, I get it. 
probably the the best way to not kick it off because that's beginning cap it off to finish it I think was my final zone conference president kept the interview on that one short because I was going to have an exit interview with him in Barcelona so kept it short he gave me a few words of counsel I'm sure I'll have to go check my journal to see what they are they didn't leave too much of an impression on me the final interview left the bigger impression um I just felt calm and I felt pure joy and I felt I felt peace which is probably the most underrated feeling that you can have especially as you get older and life keeps trying to drag you along at its pace and everybody wants their pound of flesh out of you and you're juggling mental and emotional chainsaws and trying to keep everything going and that peace it's not just some trite thing to call Jesus Christ the Prince of Peace. Because once you've had a taste of it, you know what you're working towards. So we had our final Charla game, and this was a, a bit of a crowning achievement for me. Uh, Trep had gotten his Nivelle 5, I had my Nivelle 5. Um, I was paired up with an Elder Cook who had his Nivelle 4, and I think Jones was a Nivelle 4 at this point, so... We had some uh, intellectual firepower, as it were, in the zone battle here. And a couple of the elders were like, oh man, how long is this fight going to go? Because they could go through the full list of OPUs, and I, I knew that I knew every single one of them. One of the newer elders was like, do you know them well? I said, son, I know them better than your own family. The president goes, don't get cocky. And I was like, yeah, that's true, though. Uh Think back to that zone conference I told you about in July when the president called on me when he knew I wasn't ready even though it hadn't come up. This is again, I, I think he knew what he was doing here. There were two of the references that were from the book of Mosiah, chapter 18, that were very, very similar, but there were some distinctions in, in the verses that you were going to highlight, and those verses overlapped in the two different references. Anyway, they gave us one of the references, and I told them where it was from, and they said, no, wrong one. And I stopped, and I kind of balked, and I said, I know that that's the right one. And they said, no, it's not your turn now. It goes to Trepp and Jones. And so I was, I was kind of hopping mad, but I didn't, I didn't say anything. I staring down the Ayudantes, who were kind of uh, proctoring this fight. And I look over at Trepp and Jones, and they're whispering to each other, and they give the other of the two Mosiah references the second one and I was like you better not say that one's right because I know it's wrong and they go nope that's wrong and it comes back to me and Elder Cook looks over at me and he goes just say the second one and I looked at him and I looked back at the Ayudantes and I shook my head room was quiet and I repeated what I had said the first time and they said yep that's it let's wrap it out and I was like man I really wanted to see if I could drag this fight out for hours and go through the entire thing but again that was my vanity that was me wanting to show off the president knew that because he was nobody's fool and as we all sat down to get into uh, you know, the, the talks and the lesson portion of Zone Conference, he stood up and he said, I want you to think about what you've just seen here, elders and sisters. You know, look, you, you, you saw the confidence that Elder Bradley had because he knew what he was talking about. That's how hard you should be studying. This is how well you should know the scriptures and the materials and stuff. And I was like, okay, I guess I can stick my chest out about that. I get to be proud of something, right? Still think about that. 
at the end of zone conference we have kind of an open mic testimony session and and uh, they let it go for a while and all the missionaries get to share their testimonies and um but president has you go first if you're finishing up on that transfer and since it was my last transfer and zone conference had landed right at the end of the transfer and i was literally finishing my mission in four days i got to go first and uh, i went and stood up there and looked out on the on the two zones there were you know, a couple dozen missionaries and sitting up front were elder garcia and elder feraldo and um, Feraldo and I had talked about this once or twice. I knew it was a much bigger sticking point for Garcia, but I knew that they both cared about it. You know, they were in Spain. They wanted people to speak Spanish, and uh, they didn't like it when some of the talks and stuff were, were given in English. And, you know, even, even though most of the missionaries were Americans, we were all called to speak Spanish and serve in Spain. So, you know, I completely understood where they were coming from, and so I, I did my intro bit in Spanish and said, you know, con su permiso voy a dar mi testimonio en inglés, and... They were you know, kind of gracious enough to acquiesce to that. And, and uh, I don't remember a whole lot about what I said. I just remember what I felt, what I emphasized, and what I invited everybody to tackle and, and, and learn over the remainder of their own missions. As much as a testimony should be about what you know, it should also include a call to action because that's what missionary work is. You can say things that are true, I think the more important part is inviting people to try them out and find out for themselves. And that even includes you know, the other missionaries. A testimony should include a challenge, a commitment, a call to action. <laughs> for me, obviously, uh, the most glaring thing that I had learned was how to study, how to actually be a student and a scholar and all that stuff that I should have figured out in public school and, and never did. I apologize for the jarring transition. I was recording while I was waiting in line to get my truck loaded and then the ones in front of me finished sooner than I planned and all of a sudden I was moving and I kind of had to wrap up my train of thought and then get back to work. It's been one of those days. But anyway, talking about sharing my testimony and learning and doing doing things in the mission that I I could have benefited from, you know, in my time in public school, but never really had the motivation, never really had a reason to, other than everybody was telling me I should, whereas, you know, with the mission, you know, I, I knew what my calling was, I knew I was supposed to be there, and that, that learning and studying and teaching were all, you know, integral to that, and so my, my testimony of that was really, really strong, but maybe as a result of that, but also just a result of the work that I had been doing. You know, I had a much better understanding of my Savior, of the need for my Savior, and you know, who I wanted to be for the rest of my life, you know, why I was going to, to keep living this way, to keep my covenants. So, you know, I, I just bore testimony of all those things. I, I don't make it a habit of writing down details of my testimony whenever I bear it, just because I feel like it's it's something that should be extemporaneous. Um, you know, you might organize your thoughts a little bit beforehand, but you know, I I like to just go with what the Spirit prompts me to say. I've, I've kind of used a similar method for this podcast. 
actually. Like I'll, I'll have a brief list of prompts and bullet points to follow, but you know, I try to just go with with the spirit, go off of what I feel needs to be said when I when I actually do sit down to record. Um, I just feel like it's it's more authentic that way. You know, I haven't told you guys all of my stories, not by a long shot. I haven't even told you about all the people that I've taught or all the people that were progressing. You know, I just... The stories that I told were mainly to emphasize the most important things that I learned and that I feel I should share with anybody who's going to discover and listen to this podcast. And so that was... That was kind of the guiding principle that I followed when I bore my final testimony there and, and uh, you know, sat down and listened to everybody else who got up to share theirs. When we got back to Alcoy, uh, you know, we had our weekend, had some time with, with the members and with our friends. September was coming to a close, and uh, the fog was starting to settle in in the evenings as it got a little bit cooler. You know, Alcoy had plenty of moisture there, and so we were we were walking through this park that I remember, and the the fog was kind of amplifying the lamplight and casting a a really cool feeling or you know throughout the place and Jones turns to me and he goes Elder Bradley don't go home it was I wouldn't say that it was a rare show of emotion maybe more so a rare show of vulnerability because he was he was very good about deflecting the focus off of himself and building up other people. You know, speaking as a missionary who had to uh, to kill after about only six months, six months, eight months, whatever. You know, I, I understood how difficult it was to send a missionary home, especially one that you'd become really great friends with. And obviously there was nothing that I could do to prolong my mission at that point. But it was just... What else was there for it? You get into a good rhythm, you get into a great situation, and you want it to last. But everything in this life is fleeting. But for those brief moments that you get to to feel peace and feel joy and quickly touch eternity, no wonder you want it to last forever. I didn't think for the longest time that those moments would really exist on a mission. I thought those were things that you just read about in church magazines. Kind of like Simeon walking up to me and Feraldo right after we finished our fast and said, Hey, yeah, I've been looking for you guys. I want to get baptized. You know, I, I didn't think those things really happened. That they weren't going to happen to me. And that the guys that talked about how, like, hoorah, awesome, spiritual their missions were and 
how the the spirit was just on fire and everything felt great like I, uh, I thought that was maybe a figure of speech or a slight embellishment but after having felt it and been through it I get it and that's why you guys hear me talk about Alcoy the way that I do it wasn't just that Alcoy was a beautiful place it was the people that I got to be there with there's a word in Spanish temerario uh, literally directly means reckless uh, it also means fearless the, the word temer means to fear and uh, a temerario is Feraldo explained it to me. Alguien que, que sube la carretera o sentido contrario. Somebody who who uh, jumps on the freeway in the wrong direction. You know, reckless but also fearless. Um, serving with Jones especially, I, I learned how to love people fearlessly. You know, that, that kind that C.S. Lewis was talking about. That real charitable love where you just you definitely want the best things for them and, and you know that shaped the rest of my life man I think about fearlessness and I think about the time that Jones got you know he got grabbed by the uh, the Spanish police while he and Purdue were in Terrassa speaking of you know the, the government cracking down on immigrants and all that they were also cracking down on missionaries and he was, you know, between visits at, at the uh, the residency centers or whatever, and, and he was his status was legal. He just didn't have proof of it on him at that point. And this officer grabbed him and threw him into a squad car, and all of a sudden, Purdue was without his companion and having to run back to the apartment in Terrassa and grab their passports and then find out which station he'd been taken to. And Jones was mouthing off to the cop that grabbed him and cops like tell me why I shouldn't put you on a plane right now and send you back to America that's like I'll give you 400 euros extra if you send me first class <laughs> just just fearless and that that came from a place of of understanding his calling he wasn't he wasn't looking for a fight wasn't looking to spit in anybody's eye but he knew where God wanted him and he had fought hard to get there and he knew he was going to stay there. Um, I feel like I should mention somebody else who had a kind of a similar story, and that's Trepanier. Uh, he had about six months left when I finished my mission, and he had kind of a different experience than Jones did with that whole thing. Um, in fact, when he had around four months left, you know, again, the government was cracking down, and a couple of missionaries had had lapses in their residency, and hadn't gotten letters from the government in time or some such, and you know, as a result, a couple of them had to be sent stateside to finish their missions. You know, the, the church wasn't going to dig in its heels and fight the government on these audits. They you know, wanted to show in good faith that they were there to keep the law. As a result, Trepanier kind of became uh, a casualty of that, and he had to finish the last four months of his mission in Texas. Let me tell you, he was not a fan. And after the stories he told me, I, I can't blame him. Not that there's anything wrong with, with Texas. The particular mission that he was in was just so different. 
culture-wise. They didn't have a culture of obedience. Uh, they didn't have a culture of hard work or efficiency. And you drop a missionary who was at the, the highest level, you know, study-wise and work-wise, take him out of the Spain-Barcelona mission, you drop him in some stateside mission where there are guys that have been out almost two years and barely speak any Spanish at all, and other guys that are hitting on members' daughters and sneaking out of the apartment at night and breaking rules. It's like, you know, why are you even here? He, he had a really hard time with that, and, and he fought back against that kind of, is malaise the right word? I don't know, I don't speak French. Trepp does. His name is French. I remember him writing to me and telling me that his district leader or his own leader or something couldn't understand how Trep could wake up, eat, get showered, and get dressed in 30 minutes. It's like, it's called hustle, bud. And uh, they started giving him crap for being so disciplined and working hard. He woke. They woke up one morning and he was... <laughs> he was doing isometric exercises... In the, uh, in the living room just in gym shorts and they complained that he was only just wearing his gym shorts. So the next morning they woke up and he was wearing a European swimsuit which is slightly, slightly more modest than a Speedo doing the push-ups and, the, and whatnot. They're like, dude, come on. So <laughs> the next morning they woke up and he was in his birthday suit out there and I think they learned at that point to stop complaining about him doing his exercises. And his Spanish was great and and all that, but you know, he, he hadn't wanted to finish his mission there. Jones got grabbed by the cops, got out of it. Trepp got grabbed by an auditor and had to finish here. Me, closest I came was while Jones and I were walking around in Alcoy one day, the cops stopped us and demanded to see our papers, and we didn't have, you know, our physical passports on us. We had photocopies, and they were trying to scare us or whatever, and I just shrugged it off, you know, I'm like, what, are you going to send me home? I'm going to be home in three weeks anyway, and, you know, I didn't say that, but, you know, and Jones, he'd already been through this rigmarole, and he did not care, and while, while the one cop was running our numbers, we went and taught a charla to the other cop and counted him as a number for the week, and, you know, so we walked away from, from that with a W. The takeaway from it all, one of them is, you know, something that I have stressed throughout all 24 episodes of this and that's you know go where the Lord sends you there are going to be times when you don't want to and I get it but go where the Lord sends you and when you're there be fearlessly diligent in your work cannot stress that enough At long last, the day finally came. Monday rolled around. We had the transfer calls in. We knew it was going to happen. Jones had to go up to Barcelona to pick up his EHO and go through the training meeting. I had to go up to Barcelona to go home. Um, the train was oversold, so I was stuck sitting in the uh, Valencia Nord train station by myself for a little while. That was fine. The last time Jones and I had been there, you know, waiting for our train back to uh, Alcoy, one of the hot Uruguayan twins from Tarragona saw me and 
came over and was like, hey, Elder, being all flirty and stuff. She's like, you know, I haven't seen you since last summer. You must have, you must not have much time left. And I had about a month left. And I told her, I was like, yeah, I got about, say, I got about six months left. Reason I lied to her is there, there were some girls that would uh, use weaponized flirting with the missionaries to, oh, you're going to be home soon? Oh, well, you better call me. You better give me a, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that. There's... I saw nothing good coming of that, and so, you know, I, I had a girl back home that I was writing to, and and uh, didn't didn't want to worry about pulling any faithful members out of a country that needed them and taking them home with me or anything like that. So I just kind of uh, you know told her, yeah, I'm I'm gonna be home in like six months, or whatever, and she left. And Jones was like, her shirt matched her eyelashes. It was incredible. I think like, she was very attractive, but now uh, but yeah I ended up getting a uh, kind of a first class ride on that train up to Barcelona because it was the only one the only spot that they had left and got a meal and got a movie and got to uh, Barsant's train station met up with Elder Hartman that was Elder Shizawa's Iho um, you know so walked with him to the office just you know so that neither of us would be alone we'd always have a companion got there started meeting up with the guys and, uh, you know, walking around and kind of letting it settle in that it was all over. And that we were going to go home and start the rest of our lives. Met up with a couple of the guys, uh, Elder Ellsworth, Elder Coles, I want to say, some of the other guys that had been office elders, and went out to dinner that night. Went to the Hard Rock, Barcelona. Flirted just a little bit with the... Uh, the chick behind the counter, Italian girl who was, you know, working there in Spain while she was also working on her master's in literature or something. She spoke really good English. Very pretty. We all ordered steak and potatoes. Got back to the apartment that we were staying at that night where Florence had been a, uh, a zone leader and he was, he was mess- messing with us like, oh, I see you guys are out a little bit late, like you weren't in at exactly 10 o'clock where you, you were supposed to, and I was like, don't pull that crap with me, <laughs> not going to work, and he just started laughing, and he goes, yeah, we've actually, one of the other companionships in here has a, a new trainee, and we uh, we did that to him last night, you know, they, they had gotten in at like 10.05 or something, and Florence and the other zone leader really put the screws to him, just to mess with the EHO, like I said, pranks, pranks abound, all in good taste, but slept in that apartment and uh, woke up the next day my parents were you know showing up at the at the airport I ran over there with Elder Jarvis to meet them and grab their luggage and whatnot and uh, get them settled in at, in their hotel room and then I went back to the mission office to have my final interview with president um, I, I think I'll keep you know most of what he said to myself uh, you know a lot of it was connected to other interviews that we'd had and you know kind of bringing everything to a a well-rounded close and he gave me some advice for my life for my marriage for my career options and you know told me that it was it was important to to love what I did for a living you know he had he had gone to law school and ended up in business because he knew he wasn't he wasn't going to be happy as a lawyer that's not the same as like, oh, do what you love, follow your heart or whatever. Like it was, 
you know, you can do anything and find joy in it. And if you can't find joy in it, you know, switch. And I've, I've followed that to great effect. Um, you guys know from my Brother Trucker Book Club, Tales from the Road series, that I've had a lot of great adventures in trucking. Uh, I kind of landed in the profession itself out of necessity, but I've been able to bring joy to a lot of the jobs that I've had in it. Other jobs, just by their nature or by the people who I worked for, kind of sucked the joy out of it. But, you know, if I was stuck in something for too long and I wanted to come home and kick the dog, as President Watson said, I, I understood that I was in a bad situation and needed either, you know, change myself or change the situation. You know, I, I've... I've held to that advice pretty tightly over the years. And he also, you know, gave me some some pointers on, you know, how to choose a wife, you know, what to look for and how to treat her and you know, what kind of man that I wanted to grow up to be to take these these valuable, these priceless lessons of the mission and and don't set them aside, don't discard them. Now, I've got a pretty good idea of, of how this interview went for other missionaries. Like, like I said, I mentioned before last week that, um, you know, I've, I've known some guys that were, were very good missionaries, but, you know, in the, in the years since have succumbed to, you know, whatever other influences they thought were more important and have fallen away. And in reflection, I've got to think, you know, I'm, I'm, sh I'm certain that President gave them the same advice that he gave me. And in a lot of ways, these guys went through the same experiences that I did. It's not those things that you know, de determine your dedication to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they can help you. They can definitely influence it, influence you, but it's it's your agency that's the the key. You know, you you've got to choose to learn the right lessons from it and put them into practice. So I think back on that interview with some regularity, and all the different bits of advice that he gave me for my life. Wrote it down, reflect on it often, and try to make sure that I'm doing the right things with my life. Advice has never, never done me wrong. On the tail end of your mission, it's really easy to look back and say, yeah, that was fast. At the beginning, knowing that you're looking down the barrel of 24 months, nothing for it but to work. You, you can want to do it and have it behind you at the same time. I think that just comes with the impatience of youth, and that'll... That'll eventually grow out of you, probably right around the time you hit 30 and you realize, man, I could have done something different with all those years. <laughs> but not the mission years. Wouldn't trade any of them. Not for anything. So I spent the next two weeks traipsing around the country with my parents. They wanted to come see Spain and have me be their little tour guide. Both my parents served Spanish-speaking missions, so... Uh, you know, they, they managed to handle the language pretty well. My dad's mission president was the Madrid temple president, so they were excited to go see him. And we went to all five cities where I'd served, and 
again said goodbyes to everybody I, I told them that I was going to be coming back but it was a little bit different you know as a sort of mission tourist versus you know being a straight up missionary but took pictures and, and all that stuff but I just remember being being anxious to get home hopped on the transatlantic flight and watched some movies quality quality cinematography uh 2005 fantastic four yeah um what was the other one bewitched uh herbie fully loaded yeah (laughs) quickly realized that i really wasn't missing anything in american cinema that summer batman begins had come out but it wasn't playing on the plane during that flight all i'd ever seen was the poster so i would eventually get the dvd at home but all that stuff's irrelevant i would have heck the rest of my life to catch up on whatever movies i'd missed and i still haven't seen everything it doesn't matter on october 10th our plane touched down at mccarran airport in las vegas and my little brother and little sister were there to pick us up i can still see the goofy smile on my sister's face she had braces she'd gotten braces while i was out how, uh, you know, I was walking through the baggage claim with mom and dad, and I turn around and all of a sudden my sister was there, my older, my older, my big little brother. He wasn't, uh, wasn't so small anymore. And, you know, I just gave him these huge hugs and grabbed my luggage and threw it in the minivan and came home and I sat in my old room and I couldn't tell you how long it took for that surreal feeling to wear off. But I can tell you what chipped away at it when I hopped in the pickup with my little brother and we ran over to Walmart to grab a few things. And I walked around and I I was hearing the entire world speaking in English and all of a sudden I was like, oh, right. And so began the journey of the rest of my adult life. And that was the two years of my mission, brothers and sisters. That was what I learned, that was who I became, that was who touched my life, that was who I got to try to serve. And if you've served, I hope you had that same experience. And if you didn't serve a mission, it's okay, you got the rest of your life to keep serving everybody else around you. That's fine. The Lord commands the young men to go. If you didn't, don't beat yourself up. Just serve now. Serve however you can. That'll do it for this week. I will give you one more episode next week because I want to talk about kind of the first year home. Because uh, I think that's often a uh, an overlooked chapter of the process. And it was a, a very turbulent year for me. And the things that I learned, uh, I think, could be of benefit to, to other people. But that'll do it for now. It's been a long day. And I just rolled up home. And I want to go say goodnight to my wife. Maybe check in on my kids. Get some sleep. And do this all again tomorrow. Love you guys. Keep the faith.